Hi, welcome to Canna Confidential. I'm your host, Jewel Keeter, and on this podcast, we discuss the state of the cannabis industry, as well as any insights we feel might be valuable to our listeners. So without further ado, we'll get to the content. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to Canna Confidential. I'm your host, Jewel, and I'm here with Cheryl. And today we are going to discuss some very interesting articles coming out of Canada, the U.S., and a few articles globally about uh, the updates of the industry that are occurring for cannabis cultivators and the industry at large. So we're going to start with our first article from CBC. And that is regarding the New Brunswick residents hitting liquor stores and cannabis stores before lockdown for the pandemic. New Brunswick residents didn't just head back home at the start of the province's state of emergency last month. They also stopped by provincial liquor and cannabis outlets to stock up. Fourth quarter financial results released jointly for the New Brunswick Liquor and Cannabis New Brunswick on Tuesday show revenue bumps that each agency said was caused by a COVID-19 generated buying spree. Both agencies closed out their fourth quarters and fiscal years on March 19th. New Brunswick recorded Atlantic Canada's first case of COVID-19 on March 11th, and Premier Blaine Higgs declared a state of emergency on March 19th, requiring residents to stay at home except for essential workers and errands. And Cannabis New Brunswick recorded a bump over the two weeks at the end of March of 214,500 extra in sales from residents stocking up for the state of emergency. For thousands of residents, the essential errands prior to heading home for a quarantine included going to the liquor store and the cannabis outlet of New Brunswick. The last two weeks of the quarter marked the beginning of emergency measures to respond to COVID-19, noted Cannabis New Brunswick in its financial report. It is estimated that the impact of COVID-19 on sales was during the last two weeks of the quarter. It is not clear what motivated the spree, but there were some concerns in the early days of the pandemic about the ongoing availability of alcohol and cannabis products. Now, we've touched on this from several provinces as well as states in the U.S. that people went on a buying spree because similar to the toilet paper situation that occurred in the U.S., people were concerned that cannabis might be unavailable. And that's really why we would be seeing people purchasing in bulk. Now, in terms of elevated purchasing across the board for COVID, We've talked about how that could be because cannabis is such a popular stress reliever for a lot of people recreationally, but as well as medicinally. So that would definitely be a contributing factor as well. But for those instances where it was customers purchasing in bulk, then it does seem to indicate that they were worried that there would be some kind of shortage. And I have to wonder if in two weeks, the same with toilet paper, like you can only use so much cannabis in a, in a window. And so, although they've gone ahead and bulk purchased, does that mean that now they're not going to buy in May or June because they've they've had that um, purchase at home and, and they're going to be able to use that through May and June? Or is it a window that they're just going to use more and buy more? Well, I think we did see this addressed in a previous episode, but it was very 
just we just touched on it and that's that people have been spending so much more time at home and so for people who can't necessarily medicate at work but are still in pain then i think they would be using the equivalent that they would be using if they were at work they're just well, at home now we've all seen the memes about you can start drinking at 10 a.m. because you're working from home or you're stuck in the house or whatever it is same goes for cannabis then you have to wonder if people are going to just start using cannabis at 10 a.m. when they normally wouldn't use it till, you know, three in the afternoon. Well, or recreationally, like yes, for right. sure. But at the same time, as I said, people who use it medically but are not allowed to go to work under the influence of cannabis, they still are in pain. They just can't medicate in the way that they want to. Whereas at home, without having to go to work they would just use it the way they wanted to so it will be interesting i don't think we'll know for sure until the quarantine due to covid19 is over and we see what kind of buying trends are happening then and then we'll know if people stocked up in a precautionary way and now they don't need to go out and buy more or if they've gone through their supply and they're going to keep using it at that same rate yeah it, it's just we won't know till we know Right. I have an article here from uh, MJ Biz Daily, and it's about the cannabis retailer Fire and Flower. And they are closing three Alberta stores because they're reporting a loss of $22.3 million. Canadian cannabis retailer Fire and Flower has implemented a restructuring plan that will see <clears throat> three stores in Alberta closed. And they think that that's a sign that the retail market is reaching its point of saturation. Alberta has 449 points of sale or, or dispensaries and stores for adult use cannabis. It's the only province in Canada to reach the, so they, they're using one per 10,000 people as the benchmark. So this is the only province in Canada to reach that benchmark observed in other mature markets where they figure that if you're in a, in a locale of 10,000 people, that equates to one cannabis store or dispensary. By closing three stores, Fire and Flower will be able to focus their resources and license cap allocation to stores with higher profit potential, the company said in this news release, with the earnings that it released also. The company incurred a charge of $6.5 million Canadian dollars, that's $4.6 million U.S., as a result of the restructuring. Fire and Flower reported a net loss of $22.3 million for the quarter ending February 1st, compared to a net income of $10.2 million in the previous quarter. Revenue grew 22% from the previous quarter, and also in that quarter, the company was hit with a $4.6 million impairment charge to write down some assets to their fair values. As of January 13th, the company had achieved its target of opening 45 retail stores in Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario, and in the Yukon. But Fire and Flower previously, previously said it aims to have 85 stores open in the fiscal year of 2020 and 135 stores in 2021. What I find interesting about that is we talked about Fire and Flower in our first season, and how much growth they were having and how much success they were having. And so it's very interesting that like multiple corporate cannabis companies that we have discussed, that they are having some issues and needing to restructure. And I think a lot of it is due to the fact that when you go into a new industry and you go all in, you go big, 
you don't allow yourself the opportunity that's afforded to smaller businesses because they can pivot more quickly. A larger business doesn't have the opportunity to pivot like that and they have to lay people off and they have to close stores and they have to be responsible to shareholders. Whereas a smaller privately owned company doesn't necessarily have the same responsibilities and can work with the market more easily. It's unfortunate though that, like you said, about layoffs and um, they're using, uh, it. Fire and Flower is publicly traded and so they're using other people's money to go ahead and make these extravagant jumps into untested markets and then have to close up. So it it's uh, they're using other people's money to go ahead and make these jumps. They are employing people that they are then going to let go and unemploy. Uh, it, it's just a really interesting... And let's just be candid. We know a lot of people who have approached you or that we've met through this industry who don't necessarily want to be cultivators they just want to be involved they just want to say they own a piece of whatever the company is because there's some sort of clout in being in the cannabis industry because it's very buzzy right now and people think it's cool and i think that's that's part of it you know you have investors who don't show up to a job they just put their money in and someone else makes the decisions about it and this is the situation that you end up with yeah and it's tough it's tough for the person that is at the helm because they want to do the best they can for their investors however sometimes you run into these walls that you have to make a a hard decision and and closing three stores i mean if they've got 135 in the um aimed for 2021 and 85 stores for 2020 to close three is no big deal but it hurts people that have been employed and trained and you know now they're out of work and perhaps those people will just be reallocated to the nearest store that they do have Mm -hmm. maybe they close the ones that were too close to the businesses they already had and those employees can just go work at the other location but it is it is an unfortunate scenario when you see this sort of thing happen for sure yeah I have another great article here. Um, We all know Constellation uh, out of New York. It's a a liquor giant. And uh, they they own wine and beer uh, distributorships across the U.S. They jumped in with Canopy Growth to the tune of four or five billion dollars a year ago to become part of uh, the cannabis industry. And now they have decided to go ahead and increase their stake in the Ontario cannabis producer uh, canopy. Upon issuance, the common shares represented approximately 5% of canopies issued and outstanding common shares, the company said in a news release. The transaction brings Constellation's ownership of the Canadian firm to 38.6%. Constellation which owns and distributes and markets 100 beer, wine, and spirit brands, made a splash in the cannabis industry in October of 2017, but they really made a hard purchase on uh, on Canopy last year. At the time, it announced its intention to, appo- to acquire 9.9% of the company, uh, Canopy, out of Smith's Falls in Ontario uh, for $245 million Canadian, which equates to 173 million US. The warrants were exercised at $12.98 per share. I don't know what it's trading at right now in the market, but that sounds like a strong number. 
Uh, Constellation has additional warrants and senior notes that if converted and exercised, it will increase the ownership to approximately 55.8%. There's that magic number. It's gone over 50%. So now Constellation will be run by, or Constellation will be running Canopy. While global legalization of cannabis is still in its infancy, we continue to believe the long-term opportunity in this evolving market is, a, is, a, is substantial. That's from the CEO, Bill Newlands, in the news release. You'll remember that last year, Canopy let their CEO go and put somebody in from Constellation. So this is just going to, Constellation is just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger over top of Canopy. We should mention that it's not at 55% as of yet. As of now, they've only right. exercised the right to own 38%. Right. For the nine-month period ending December 31st of last year, Canopy reported a net loss of $1.8 billion. The company's new CEO made significant changes soon after taking over the role earlier this year. What I wonder is if can if constellation is using canopy as a loss right now while they're biding their time in the industry to own one of the companies that's i mean canopy has has put roots down in europe they've obviously been very involved in the canadian cannabis legalization and the market as a whole and constellation being a us based company it's very interesting to think that they might exercise their right to own 55% of a Canadian cannabis brand that once cannabis is legal in the U.S., if you have the largest Canadian brand right there in Smiths Falls, Ontario, they already have it's a very stake. easy to just yeah. and, migrate and canopy, that south. Canopy is active in the U.S. also, so it's just a matter of um, I, whether they needed a... a right down and bought it, bought shares at a loss. Um, and they're building the portfolio to um, prepare for when it comes out of its infancy and into the US market with a strong, strong position remains to be seen. Well, Constellation can afford to. Yes. They can afford to wait. Yeah. Being such a large corporation. So now, will direct our attention to the US. And this was something that was very interesting to me. Uh, and this article comes from Benzinga. Creative agencies offer free services to struggling cannabis companies. And while the, these businesses are based in the US, they could potentially work with Canadian cannabis companies as well. Cannabis-focused branding and marketing agency Jared Mursky-led Wick & Mortar has been the driving creative force behind some of the industry's largest brands. For its part, communications company Chapter 2, founded by Kenneth Liu and Clara Gion, has an impressive track record. Working with top designer in fashion, including Reese Cooper, Chrysler Kark, heavyweights like Inditex, Levi's, Nike, LeBron James his label unknown and dj steve aoki now the firms have decided to combine forces to launch a new agency focused on helping cannabis companies that are struggling amid the covid 19 pandemic the company that they have created is called high grade hope a philanthropic project that will offer a suite of premium services including product packaging designs and content creation for brands seeking a relaunch 
The goal is to help small independent cannabis businesses reorganize, leverage talent and services that they typically would not be able to afford at this juncture and come back stronger and ready to dominate their respective markets. While they had been planning on the new venture starting out on a different note, they quickly pivoted in light of the unprecedented impact of COVID-19 to bring awareness to what's happening in the cannabis industry and to help bring immediate assistance to the small business owners who are suffering the most. The team at Seattle-based Wick and Mortar quickly reached out to a network of partners, friends, and clients and organized into a philanthropic project to unite. From this, High Grade Hope was born with the mantra, we will band together to brand together. Companies enrolled in High Grade Hope will undergo a rebrand under the care of Wick and Mortar and relaunch under the public relations of Chapter 2 with the hope of bouncing out of the global economic crisis from coronavirus. Moving as swiftly as possible, High Grade Hope has launched their organization and website in less than 10 days, and the firm is kicking off the help with an open application process. Well, why is this so interesting? because we haven't seen anything like this before. We haven't seen any sort of philanthropic effort to help small cannabis businesses with something like their marketing and branding. And this is something that is very forward thinking and also very front of mind uh, at Kinhana. We focus a lot on who is our customer, what should our product line be, what kind of colors would our customers like, what's in line with our mission statement, We think a lot about this sort of thing. So to see a company come out, not only talking about offering marketing and rebranding services to cannabis businesses, but to do so from a philanthropic standpoint and what really getting themselves known in the industry with a gesture of goodwill is just such a great move and and really legitimizes the cannabis industry as an industry just like any other that needs branding and marketing and all of those bells and whistles behind it. Typically when people go into this uh, industry, uh, we've talked about this before, you're typically either a grower or you're somebody that has what we refer to as a suit, somebody that has has their eye on the dollar, the eye on organizational management, uh, that kind of skill skill set and the other person that goes in is somebody that loves to be in the grow and with their hands in the dirt or you know doing hydroponic whatever it is Um, the marketing and the branding is a specialty unto its own and it's tough for a person that has their um, their hands in the dirt or they are the managerial uh, person doing the book work Um, it it's the scope of branding and marketing is outside of those two wheelhouses. So it's interesting to see somebody step up because this is a new industry and and the whole marketing and branding uh, piece of the pie really is something that hasn't been fully explored, especially by small businesses because small businesses in general are so focused on their product and in the day-to-day on operations. What they make. Yeah, and not... Typically, you don't think a lot about the the branding and the marketing. So it's nice to see somebody stepping up with some skill to help those smaller businesses. And I wonder if they're versed in all of the requirements. Like with Health Canada, you're not allowed to advertise. You're not allowed to use certain language. You're not allowed to... uh, I guess you could 
advertise as long as you hit all of the boxes of you're not promoting the use of cannabis, really. You're not making any claims, false or otherwise. And you're not marketing to a demographic that would be considered ineligible for the product, but using colors and, and things like that that would attract them. So I hope that they're familiar with all of the requirements. I would assume if they're making a play like this and with Wick and Mortar being involved, which is the cannabis-focused branding and marketing agency behind all of this, I think that they would be at least in the U.S. market. But if they were to assist a Canadian company, it would be very interesting to see how they would adjust their marketing and branding style to fit within the requirements of Health Canada. I do believe that you'll find as the U.S. federally legalizes, they will have the same sort of uh, advertising stipulations so that, you know, the same way that liquor and tobacco can't show those products being used in a way that um, is conducive to children getting involved in the, with the product. I think you're going to see that with the cannabis industry in the U.S. Is the same way we have it regulated here in Canada, the U.S. will probably do the same thing. And that's likely. It just remains to be seen yeah. until we know for sure, until it is federally legal. So now we'll go to our next article from the U.S., which is also from Benzega, and that's Shifting Cannabis Sentiments in the Bible Belt Presents Reform and Business Opportunities. It would be hyperbolic to call America's Bible Belt and cannabis a match made in heaven. That said, <laughs> the region is showing signs that its oft-conservative view in politics and on the pulpit may be opening up to progressive cannabis reform. The region has started to gain a reputation in recent years due to its entrepreneurial benefits for cannabis operators seeking lower tax burdens. Such tax opportunities stem from passing medical cannabis laws in several states, including Louisiana, Arkansas, and Texas. Yet the medical cannabis laws aren't always as progressive as they seem. Texas regulations are so restrictive that some don't even view the state's marketplace as a legitimate one. Despite its limitations, Texas has taken further steps than other states like Tennessee, Mississippi, and Alabama, where weed is entirely illegal. And that's something that is just really interesting because as someone who lived in the southern U.S. for several years, there are a lot of people there who enjoy recreational cannabis and let's just call a spade a spade. So it's very interesting to think that it's coming to the point where legalization is a part of the conversation where typically things like this would not be uh, openly discussed, but, but yet it's happening. And I think that shows that two things, either people are being more open about the fact that they're using cannabis, whether medically or recreationally, or people are seeing the potential of the industry becoming legitimate and how it no longer needs to be stigmatized the way that it has been. No matter what your view on the plant, there are medical benefits for people with things like seizures, fibromyalgia, arthritis, and that can't necessarily be overlooked from a medical perspective. It's interesting uh, traveling through the, the states where uh, I have lived also. It's um, where, where the product was not discussed previously and highly taboo all of a sudden it seems that people are uh open about it and they're they're t 
talking about it and they want to know more information about cannabis and and what it can do whereas before it was just a hard no yeah it's really it's very interesting to watch especially something that you didn't think was going to happen and while we're talking about it uh, you know my experience with it was a hard no also and i think a lot of people came through that era um you know it was outlawed in canada in 1923 I think but they didn't actually enforce it until 1930 uh, so all of us came through the the era of you know it's a it's a hard no so it's interesting that there are so many people climbing on board recognizing either you're either recognizing the medical benefits and and wanting to be part of that or you're recognizing the financial gain and wanting to be part of that or recognizing that in moderation, something that that has been shown to not harm people significantly. I mean, certainly not more than alcohol or tobacco does, and both of those are legal. So why why stand in the way of progress when it, there are more positives than negatives? Absolutely. Now, I know we've already gone into the U.S. Uh, stories for the news, but I want to talk about an article that starts in Canada and then goes into the U.S., the Ontario Cannabis Store extends direct-to-door delivery. This week, to include more areas in southern Ontario, the OCS is allowing private companies to deliver cannabis to customers. Ontario is Canada's largest adult-use cannabis market with $38.1 million Canadian dollars, that's $27 million U.S., in sales in February. Customers in the province now have more options for delivery. Order through the OCS website, which offers post office pickup, as well as direct-to-door delivery via an outside company for certain postal codes. Thirdly, privately owned retailers still have a temporary allowance to offer curbside pickup and home delivery as their stores remain closed in accordance with the province's emergency pandemic order. We are experiencing a higher than normal volume of orders and extra shifts have been added to fulfill them while ensuring that we follow the COVID-19 best practices, according to a cannabis store shipping update that was posted to the website this week. OCS continues to accept wholesale orders above, amid the COVID pandemic. Ontario Cannabis Store Direct-to-Door Delivery Services is based on the largest populations so northern ontario this is not applicable but for toronto hamilton waterloo guelph brantford georgetown aurora and newmarket they have the availability of either getting their cannabis delivered by the post office pick up at the post office or delivered right to their door and the segue is that now nevada is allowing curbside pickup also the governor for the state of Nevada is easing coronavirus-related restrictions on some outdoor activities and some things that are, will be starting to open again soon. Steve Sisolak, the governor for Nevada, has issued a statement saying that they will allow retail businesses and some marijuana dispensaries to offer curbside pickup, as restaurants have been doing. Other states with legal marijuana sales will allow recreational cannabis shops to sell curbside also. Nevada's move could provide a boost to cannabis sales. Up to now, state regulators have required recreational cannabis stores to operate as delivery only during this outbreak. Sisolak's announcement 
came as the governor decided to extend his directive asking people to stay at home and to limit the spread of the, the virus until at least May 15th. The governor had issued a stay-at-home order on April 1st, but before that had already ordered non-essential businesses to close. So it's interesting that uh, Nevada, I have another article that we're going to touch on. Nevada has actually, because the casinos are closed, their whole uh, economy and industry for tourists has um, come to a crashing halt, I guess. But it's nice that the governor is trying to keep some money moving through the state by allowing uh, curbside pickup and, and the dispensaries to stay open and operate business. It is interesting. And a lot of people think of, when they think of Nevada, they think of the Las Vegas Strip. And yes, the Strip and the hotels, they employ thousands and thousands of people who live in the Las Vegas Valley. But outside of that, it's another town. It's a city like any other city, and there are other industries happening there as well. Uh, a lot of them related to tourism, but there are people living there, going about their lives, and those people oftentimes need access to cannabis, whether recreational or, or medical. So I think it's great that they're giving people options to get access to the things they need if they live in an area where perhaps their dispensary isn't delivering to that they can go and get what they need to make it through this time that has been so trying for so many. Yes. And now I want to talk to you about another um, very interesting article that I got from NBC News. Since 1968, the Drug Enforcement Administration has required scientists who want to study cannabis effects to use marijuana from a 12-acre farm at the University of Mississippi. And that is the only place that scientists are allowed to access cannabis, which I find just so interesting. Also, with just 12 acres, how could any scientist who wanted, if you have 50,000 scientists across the U.S. at multiple universities, 12 acres isn't going to be able to supply them all with enough cannabis to study. That's so true. When you think about, you know, 12 months of the year and how many crops you can put through. Even in Mississippi, you know, the, the weather gets cold enough that there's going to be a certain section there of the year when there, there won't be cannabis available. Dr. Sue Sisley has been trying to do some research with cannabis and finds that the product that's coming out of Mississippi is substandard. It's powdery mildew. It's uh, a collection of sticks and um, just not quality cannabis. And she treats veterans, military veterans with PTSD. And she finds that the product that she is given to do her research with substandard. So she's been pushing really hard to try and get the government to open up uh, other facilities where scientists can access cannabis. She says that uh, this is a direct quote. We're trying to make sure the public is aware of what we believe is an injustice, a suppression of scientific freedom, and to understand the myriad ways that the government has ensured that cannabis drug development research will never proceed. It's very interesting. And we touched on in a previous episode that there was another uh, and I believe it was another doctor who was importing cannabis because they just couldn't get quality cannabis to test with. But they had 
access through the industry and were based in a state where importing from Canada was an option. I'm assuming that Dr. Sisley is not in a state where that's necessarily an option. I don't know what state she's in, but I, I've read the article and it it's kind of pitiful that there's such a, a bottleneck that she can't even access. I mean, we're all so happy that there's money available now for research, proper in-depth research to be done for the, the qualities of cannabis for helping people in medical need. And so for her to be bottlenecked like that, where she can't even access quality cannabis to test. And I think a lot of it has to do with the way that cannabis was viewed up until the last maybe 10 years. And so, and these restrictions, as you said, 1968 is when this was allowed. And so at that point, it would just sort of be, you know, a band-aid on an issue where, oh, you want to study cannabis? Okay, well, here's this little tiny plot of land to go about your studies of five different professors. But now you've got hundreds of schools with thousands and thousands of scientists who want to study the effects of cannabinoids and terpenes and what THC does, what CBD does, what other cannabinoids can do potentially for people we don't even know yet. And that's why it's so exciting to know that there's all this money available and and scientists that are actively trying to access the cannabis to find ways that it can help people. And it, it is happening. I mean, in Canada, it's happening. In Israel, it's happening. In the Netherlands, they're doing pilot studies. So it is happening. Whether or not the U.S. chooses to be a part of the progress remains to be seen. I mean, specifically in certain states, obviously in states where it's legalized, they very much are aware of what the plant can do for people and actively are seeking ways to make it happen. I don't know about growing in the U.S. because I've never been a grower there, but I wonder about my counterparts there that even though they're legal inside their state, you have to wonder if they always look over their shoulder wondering if the feds are going to come down on them because the DEA is outside of a of a state mandate uh, governmental rule so they they you have to wonder if the growers are looking over their shoulders wondering if the DEA is still going to bring choppers over overhead and close down their operation well I think once the states have chosen to legalize uh, there is some respect given that the federal government recognizes the states have legislation and while it may not agree with their legislation, that is, I think, part of what's underwritten into the freedom of America or the states to have a bit of autonomy. Not completely, obviously, but a bit. Before we leave the U.S., in an article that I found uh, in MJ Biz Daily, they, they asked a lot of... Uh, producers and uh, dispensary owners, growers, what uh, 420 looked like because of the coronavirus. So a CEO from Mint Dispensary in Phoenix, Raul Molina, said that his sales increased year over year, up 60%, April 17th through April 20. They welcomed over 6,000 new patients at their dispensaries. David Elias, the founder and CEO from Lowell Herb Company in Los Angeles, 
says we hit our sales goals for March and April and we recognize we're fortunate to be in that position. We're grateful to the local authorities for deeming cannabis an essential business so we can continue serving customers and patients at one of the most challenging periods of our time. Kyle Kazan, a CEO from Glasshouse Group in El Segundo in California, we continue to successfully expand our delivery capabilities to meet growing consumer demands. Overall, our business is up 111% year over year. For the week of 420, we saw a 400% increase in delivery and double digit growth across the brick and mortar retail operations year over year. Dennis O'Malley, CEO from Caliva San Jose, California. Our 420 sales this year exceeded last year's with the largest increase coming through our delivery business. We saw a three times increase in delivery orders compared to 420 delivery sales last year. My last one is Tara Wells, Ganja Goddess in Los Angeles. Year over year, our sales were significantly higher, historically so. California customers went all in on the delivery. Her revenue was up 275%. Total orders were up about 350% from last year. All in all, the cannabis industry is alive and well. And now we'll go to our global articles for today. So this comes to us from Benzinga, and that's how COVID-19 is affecting cannabis companies in Colombia. As cannabis businesses in North America attempt to navigate the imminent recession, Colombia's largest cannabis operators are sharing comments of tranquility in the midst of a global market turmoil. The four companies based in Colombia add up to over 40 million square feet of cultivated open-air cannabis crops. They operate a wide array of extractions and processing facilities and have a robust infrastructure for distribution. They export to North America, South America, Australia, the UK, and various countries in continental Europe. Although commercial activity and client interest continues, the companies are experiencing challenges in dealing with the supply chain logistics, completing licensing efforts, and finding new capital. To give some context, Colombia registered its first case of COVID-19 on March 6th and proceeded to issue a countrywide stay-at-home order on March 24th. The order is currently ongoing until May 11th. As part of the agricultural and pharmaceutical industries, cannabis was deemed an essential product early on, allowing for cultivation, processing, and commercialization operations to continue through the quarantine. But... As we stated, there have been some supply chain issues. Pharmacilo's CCO, David Gordon, said that while interest from customers has not changed, there are new questions being raised from a logistics perspective. With most countries under lockdown, moving products around becomes one of the hardest challenges for Colombian cannabis companies, most of which are focused around growing cannabis for export. The global shipping market, the shippers and receivers, the import-export, government officials, border control, all of that is reduced staffing because of COVID-19. The president of Clever Leaves said that since commercial airline companies that typically transport their products are mostly at a halt, international sales are delayed, which has a direct impact on their cash flow. This led Colombian companies to search for alternatives in distributing their products internationally, some options being maritime transport and private charter planes. The CEO of Chiron said his company is encountering big challenges in getting products across country lines. Now, all of this is because of reduced staffing in pretty much every 
industry across the board in pretty much every country that has had any sort of impact from COVID-19. So while Colombians are, as we stated in the beginning, tranquil about the situation, I think until we figure out what the new normal is for picking up business again, it is going to be a little bit choppy. We're going to see a few months of trying to figure this out while we don't necessarily know because we've never had to navigate anything like this, uh, at least not the way that we have done business for the past 50 years. Yeah, it's going to be, um, I mean, I, I think I speak for everybody when we are all fed up with the self-isolating and staying home. Everybody wants to get back outside and, you know, see family and friends and travel and do all the things that we used to do before. Um, so I, I know from my own standpoint with our cannabis grow, it has pre- presented its challenges. It definitely has. And I think we can all recognize that the responsibility that we have to each other is to continue to stay home until we know that it's safe, or at least all the necessary precautions have been put in place to ensure the safety of those who are most vulnerable for COVID-19. So yes, while it can be frustrating, it's the important thing is to think about your fellow man in this case and to to think about your grandma or someone else's grandparents that that's why we're doing all of this is to protect as many people as possible. So things will go back to a new normal. We will, the supply chain issues will be resolved. Business will go back to normal. The economy will recover. All of that will happen. But the one thing that's irreplaceable is each other. So it's really important that we protect what matters. I hope that this episode finds you well, and that is everything that we have for today. So if you have any questions, as always, please feel free to send us an email. We love to chat about anything cannabis related. Until next week, we'll talk to you then. Stay well. Thanks so much for listening. If you have any questions about today's topics or the cannabis industry in general, then please send an email to admin at kinhana.com. That's K-I-N-H-A-N-A.com.